From Bloomberg Industry Group, you're listening to Uncommon Law. My name's Adam Allington. This is the third episode in our Unchecked series, looking into the prospect of new regulations for social media and big tech companies. In recent years, elected leaders from around the world have been warning that companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter have so restructured the way we communicate such that they now pose an actual threat to our democratic systems of government. Tech companies have successfully fought or blocked most efforts at substantive regulatory changes, but now that Republicans and Democrats have gripes about big tech, they seem to be in general agreement that something must be done. And increasingly, that's something that they're talking about is antitrust regulation. Let's just go ahead and call them what they are. They're monopolies. Facebook in particular is a monopoly. Google is a monopoly. They have unprecedented power in the American economy, over American news, over the distribution of information and communication. This is Republican Senator Josh Hawley speaking at last year's Wall Street Journal Tech Live conference. Unlike years past, when being pro-business was viewed as a badge of pride among conservatives, these days a growing number of Republicans, Hawley included, find themselves looking to the tools of big government as a means to push back against what they perceive as woke corporate activism, with big tech being the prime example. In April, Hawley rolled out a bill that would block mergers and acquisitions by firms with a market cap over $100 billion. And just for context, Facebook, Google, and Apple all have market capitalization well over a trillion dollars. Hawley's bill would also make it easier for companies to be prosecuted under existing federal antitrust laws, which, not coincidentally, is what many Democrats in the House are also trying to do. Many digital markets are defined by monopoly or duopoly control. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google are gatekeepers to the online economy. They bury or buy rivals and abuse their monopoly power, conduct that is harmful to consumers, competition, innovation, and our democracy. Rhode Island Democrat David Cicilline chairs the House Judiciary's Antitrust Subcommittee. On June 25th, the panel approved a sweeping package of six antitrust bills seeking to rein in the power of big tech and increase competition in the digital marketplace. In testimony, submissions, and numerous interviews with subcommittee staff, businesses of all types and sizes described how dominant platforms exploit their gatekeeper power to charge exorbitant fees advantage their own products and services, impose oppressive contract terms, and extract valuable data from the people and businesses that rely on them. And Cecilini isn't just cranking away on the same old liberal, anti-business, pro-big government organ grinder. The gentleman from Colorado, Mr. Buck, for his opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is the subcommittee's ranking Republican, Ken Buck. These monopolists routinely use their gatekeeper power to crush competitors, harm innovation, distort and destroy the free market and silence conservatives. We are giving the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission the tools they need to restore the free market, incentivize innovation and give small businesses a fair shot against oligarchs like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. 
The House bills run the gamut from what could be described as legislative tweaks such as increasing fees on proposed mergers or requiring interoperability between platforms to much bigger changes such as barring the practice of selling competing products on digital marketplaces owned and operated by the company, as is the case with Amazon or Apple's App Store. And as it currently stands, the legislative pathway probably represents the best chance for anything to change in the near future. In a major setback for the trust-busting camp, on June 28th, a U.S. District Court judge dismissed an antitrust lawsuit brought by the FTC on the grounds that the prosecutors hadn't sufficiently provided evidence that Facebook is in fact a monopoly. I have to say that I was not particularly surprised that the two suits were dismissed. Derek Bambauer is a law professor at the University of Arizona. Derek, were you surprised that these cases were dismissed before going to trial? I personally think that the Biden administration has brought a much more activist and aggressive view or approach to antitrust enforcement. The difficulty for the administration is that it's doing so against the backdrop of a federal court system that is institutionally much more skeptical of antitrust claims than it was 20 or 25 years ago. So it is essentially a reflection of the economic, the prevailing economic wisdom in antitrust law. And so I really think that that's somewhere that the FTC's enthusiasm for going after Facebook runs headlong into that skepticism, and that's where the complaints come up short. Through Facebook's acquisitions of companies such as Instagram and WhatsApp, the FTC alleged that the company holds a virtual monopoly over social networking. But Judge James Boesberg said that prosecutors didn't provide enough facts to back up that claim. He did give the agency 30 days to refile its complaint. So do you think that this case is still in play? So that has at least two problems. The first problem for the FTC is it's actually not a lot of time. You know, this FTC investigation has been going on for uh, quite some time now. And if this is essentially the best case that they can put forward after that level of research and scrutiny, I doubt very much that another month is going to make much difference. The second difficulty is that the court is very plainly skeptical that the FDC will be able to adduce enough evidence. Because the court clearly looks askance at the way that they define the social networking market, essentially just so that it's only Facebook. But then they say, even if we're willing to allow them that at this stage, at the motion to dismiss stage, that this level of evidence, which is essentially just the FTC's say so that Facebook has 60% market share and has used predatory conduct to maintain it. They say that that wouldn't work even for standard markets, whereas here we're dealing with a relatively poorly understood market. Okay, fair enough. These are relatively new markets. And yes, there are certainly other social media platforms. But I also don't think that it's coincidence that Facebook happened to buy the two companies that were these rising stars in photo sharing and messaging, companies that we now know from internal documents that Facebook viewed as its biggest competitors. So how is this any different from previous monopoly cases, say AT&T buying up regional phone carriers and increasing prices? 
I think it's a good question. And uh, my answer, I think as a normative matter, would be that it's strange when you're dealing with a market that at least feels free for consumers. So the uh, just the FTC is unable to show any pricing power or any predatory conduct because they're not trying to raise prices. Facebook isn't trying to charge us. The irony is that the real underlying problem, I think, is Facebook's collection and use and the security with which it protects uh, large reams of personal data that uh, the company holds about us, but that's actually not at issue in this suit. You mentioned the issue of data privacy, and this is where I think these concerns about monopolies and competition do start to overlap with some of the other concerns about social media. For instance, through its acquisition and growth strategy, Facebook now has detailed data on almost 3 billion users worldwide. And many say that's just too much power to put in the hands of a private company with no government oversight. So Derek, do you think the judge's decision to dismiss the FTC's initial case maybe bolsters the push for a congressional solution, either on antitrust or some other form of regulation? So I think that the question of whether this strengthens the argument for new antitrust rules depends really on how worried one is about Facebook or Twitter or Google and what sorts of harms you think that their conduct is creating. And there, as I said, I think that it's perfectly reasonable to be skeptical about the massive data collection and data use of these companies. But I don't see much evidence, and the FTC seems to have found the best that it could, for showing that there is anti-competitive conduct in terms of blocking out competitors. Uh, if that were the case, if the first entrant into a market were the one that was most likely to succeed, we would still all be on LiveJournal and MySpace and Friendster and Yahoo for search. So I personally think that there isn't a need for new antitrust laws. There is a need for more rigorous investigation and more rigorous fact-finding of the ones that already exist. Facebook has come under stiff criticism over issues of data privacy in recent years, especially in the wake of 2018's revelations that the political research firm Cambridge Analytica had improperly gained access to the personal data of Facebook's users to spread Russian disinformation ahead of the 2016 election. So it was around this time when the question of monopoly power really started to gain new traction, both among many Democrats as well as some Republicans, such as South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who questioned Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg about the topic during a joint Senate hearing. Uh, who's your biggest competitor? Uh, Senator, we have a lot of competitors. Who's your biggest? Mm, I think there are three categories that I would focus on. One are the other tech platforms. So Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, we overlap with them in different ways. Do they, do, do they provide the same service you provide? Um, in different ways, different let parts me, of it, yes. Let me put it this way. If I buy a Ford and it doesn't work well and I don't like it, I can buy a Chevy. Is it an alternative to Facebook in the private sector? Uh, yes, Senator. The average American uses eight different apps okay. to communicate with their friends and stay in touch with people, okay. ranging from texting apps the, to email. Which is the same to, service you provide. Well, we is, provide a number of different services. Is Twitter the same as what you do? It overlaps with a portion of what we do. You don't think you have a monopoly? Uh, it certainly doesn't feel like that to me. Okay. 
It doesn't. So Instagram, you bought Instagram. Why did you buy Instagram? Uh, because they were very talented app developers who were making good use of our platform and understood our values. So my point is, what do we tell our constituents that given all the things we've just discovered here, it's a good idea for us to rely upon you to regulate your own business practices. In 2019, the FTC imposed a $5 billion penalty on Facebook, the largest privacy or data security penalty ever imposed. Still, many Democrats criticized the deal as a slap on the wrist. Google is also the subject of an ongoing investigation by the Department of Justice for Anti-Competitive Practices in Search and Advertising. The company's defended itself against such monopoly charges in the past by stressing that its products are free and therefore don't fit the classical definition of a monopoly, characterized by limited choices and higher prices. People don't really understand the true costs of some of these apps and software and, you know, web companies that seem to be free, but they're really not free. This is Sally Hubbard. I am director of enforcement strategy at the Open Markets Institute. She also served as an assistant attorney general in the Antitrust Bureau of New York State and wrote a book called Monopolies Suck, Seven Ways Big Corporations Rule Your Life and How to Take Back Control. I think the harms are just a little bit more difficult to see. First of all, we are paying a huge cost in our our data, which is highly valuable, right? And surveillance of every move that we make, every thought we have, everyone we talk to. <laughs> um, there are huge costs in that respect directly to the consumer. And then the consumer ends up paying in a bunch of other ways that they may not understand. For example, uh, because these tech companies have become the infrastructure of commerce and the choke point that every business has to go through to reach consumers to get to market. I assume here that you're talking about the cut Apple takes for in-app purchases made on iPads or iPhones? Yeah, so um, they impose what is the equivalent of taxes. That's why we call the Apple, you know, 30% charge an Apple tax. The Google uh, charge for every company, every business, small businesses, large businesses have to pay huge amounts of money just to become visible to consumers when a consumer searches under their business name. And it's a big, you know, stumbling block, a big barrier when you know that you're going to have to pay these taxes to all these companies to starting a business. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing some of the lowest rates of economic dynamism in our economy, which means consumers also suffer with less innovation, right? Because there's less companies getting started. As you know, Sally, antitrust law over the last 40 years or so has been shaped by a legal framework called the Consumer Welfare Standard, which prioritizes harms caused to consumers through things like price increases or supply shortages, as opposed to harms caused to competition by an uneven playing field. So you and many others have been very critical of this framing. Can you tell me where you think the consumer welfare model breaks down? So the definition of monopoly power under antitrust law is the power to control prices or exclude competitors. Now, this should be able to be proven through direct evidence when you can see that these companies have just kicked out their competitors. But what the courts have done instead is focus more on market share, which is kind of how we've gotten into the mess that we're in now with monopolies ruling our economy, because 
When you're debating about market share, you end up having this battle of economic experts about what is the market. The monopolists want to make the market defined very broadly. You know, we'll hear, we'll hear Amazon say things like, we have 4% of the market of all commerce. But that is not a relevant product market. All commerce is not a relevant product market for antitrust purposes, okay? So to look at what is actually the relevant market, what you're really focusing on is sub- substitutability. If a company screws you over as a consumer by increasing your prices or reducing the quality, what are your options as a consumer? What are the other companies that you go to? Those options all taken together will be the relevant market. So we all know this very clearly with like our cable company. The bill goes up, we don't really have an option. We just have to suck it up, right? It's been hard for people to understand when it comes to big tech because there's this myth that it's free, right? Probably the most famous antitrust case that dealt with tech companies was the case of U.S. versus Microsoft back in 1998. So how similar or different would you say the Microsoft case was to the one that DOJ is now making against Google? DOJ's case against Google is incredibly similar to U.S. v. Microsoft. Um, If you remember what happened in Microsoft was that Microsoft had a monopoly in the operating system used on um, PC computers. And it used that monopoly power to destroy competition in the market for browsers. It required the makers of computers to pre-install Internet Explorer and not allow Netscape Navigator to even have a shot at competing. This was not competition on the merits about who is the best. This was, let me use my muscle as the monopoly power, as a monopolist of the operating system to kick out competitors. So Sally, Gen Xers such as myself are old enough to remember the browser wars of the late 90s, which pitted Microsoft versus Netscape. So in this specific case, the government was alleging that Microsoft violated the Sherman Antitrust Act, which for people who don't know, is a fairly old law that stretches back to the late 1800s. But it wasn't until the early 20th century when President Teddy Roosevelt used Sherman to force the breakup of monopolies in the railroad and oil sectors. The act was dusted off again in the 1970s in a landmark case involving AT&T, and then, as we said, against the anti-competitive practices of Microsoft. And now that's the same thing that Google has done in many respects, but particularly with the Android operating system. The Android operating system is the really the only commercially viable, licensable uh, operating system for phone makers. So every phone maker has to license Android, you know, apart from obviously Apple, but the Samsungs of the world and whatnot. And they have no choice but to accept the terms and conditions that Google applies to that deal. And Google said, you can't pre-install any competing apps. You have to install our apps. So it's really so similar. In addition to the FTC probe of Facebook, which we talked about earlier in the show, the agency's also planning to review Amazon's bid to buy Hollywood's MGM studio for $8.5 billion. So Sally, it would appear that government regulators are really trying to make trust busting great again. How confident are you that they'll be successful? 
So those cases do take several years to resolve, and you never know exactly how they're going to turn out. You could have a very strong case and still not prevail, depending on the whims of the judge. Uh, we saw that in the Sprint T-Mobile merger. That was a very strong antitrust case, and the judge didn't really follow antitrust law in letting that deal go through. So I think it's important that we proceed on both fronts to go after monopolization through litigation and trying to get a faster uh, fix and a more you know, wholesale fix through legislation. Because when you're going after litigation, it, it can be a bit of a, a game of whack-a-mole where you're just going after specific instances of anti-competitive behavior and not making sure that you're setting rules of the road that allow for robust, open, and fair competition, which is what Congress is trying to do. Sally Hubbard is Director of Enforcement Strategy at the Open Markets Institute, an organization that advocates against corporate concentration. Sally, thanks so much for chatting with me. Thank you for having me. Still, many others say that the government tends to be a poor prognosticator of where the tech industry is headed, and bringing antitrust actions through the courts often fails to produce the outcomes people actually want. Yeah, so the idea of using antitrust as a tool to regulate social media companies, it's pretty extreme. Chris Koopman is executive director of the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Chris, you've written that much of the anger directed at big tech these days is the result of our increasingly partisan politics. So are you saying that the concerns people have aren't really that big of a deal or that antitrust just isn't the right tool for addressing them? There are many much more narrowly tailored solutions to the individual problems that policymakers may have with these companies. And breaking them up uh, is not going to solve these problems. In fact, it may make many of these problems worse, be it disinformation or privacy policies or what have you. There's a value to having big companies involved in this because a company like Facebook, a big company engaged in content moderation, for example, can approach really big questions with all the tools and all the resources it it has to bear, as opposed to maybe a much smaller size social media platform that cannot regulate what's being said on its platform because it just isn't big enough or have the resources to handle those issues. One of the issues that you just mentioned, content moderation, has been the subject of intense debate recently, with some even suggesting that the dominant internet platforms should be regulated as public utilities or common carriers, like a railroad or a phone company, which can't pick and choose which customers they serve. Yeah, so the idea of like, what does a narrowly tailored solution to something like content moderation look like? I'm not sure there is a clean answer, but I do think that that conversation ought to be had when you use antitrust as, a, as opposed to specific public policies. It's really hard for the FTC to regulate content. It's really hard to break up a company uh, generally because of something very specific that you want to accomplish. So having a narrowly tailored policy that says companies must do the thing you want them to do, um, that allows you to have that debate on the merits as opposed to what we have now, which is just a broad conversation about should we break up this company or that company is somehow a, an appropriate solution 
to a question of speech online. But Chris, others point out that our antitrust laws are actually well positioned to address a number of specific harms, including stifling innovation or the misuse of private data. The conversations around data privacy, it's a difficult question, but definitely one that needs to balance the, the idea of competition alongside the overwhelming benefits that many of these consumers are getting by trading their data for for the products. You think, for example, Google, right? Google, Google is, is giving away its products and in exchange, consumers are giving up uh, huge swaths of their data about what they do online, both publicly and privately. But in many ways, the, the consumers are winning <laughs> overwhelmingly in that exchange. You look, for example, what people would be willing to pay to have privacy in Google. And you're talking less than a penny a search you're talking maybe a hundred dollars or so a year certain surveys of of consumers have found so consumers aren't really willing to pay that much for privacy but what they are willing to do is exchange their privacy for all of the services that we're, we're getting online for free Chris Koopman is the executive director of the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. As we stated earlier, last October, a House antitrust subcommittee released the results of a landmark investigation into the business practices of the big four tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. The 449-page report found that the companies regularly employed monopoly-style tactics to maintain competitive advantages. Over and over, words like fear, bullying, and hardship came up in interviews. App developers, third-party sellers, and even large publishers reported being victims of predatory behavior. This is the subcommittee's chairman, Rhode Island Democrat David Cicilline. According to these businesses, they are dependent on platform gatekeepers to connect with their users or customers because they have few, if any, other options. They feel trapped. They are, in fact, trapped. By maintaining control of the infrastructure of the digital age, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple can conduct surveillance to identify potential rivals and ultimately bury or buy any competitive threats. During hearings, the subcommittee heard testimony from dozens of companies alleging various harms, including predatory pricing, contract extortion, and using algorithms to preference company-owned products in search, advertising, social networking, and e-commerce. David McLaughlin is a reporter covering antitrust cases for Bloomberg News. So, David, you wrote about the recent markup hearings in the House. Are Republicans and Democrats singing from the same hymnal here? Or, as we saw with things like Section 230 reform, are they simply talking past each other? Yeah, there was a lot of that. Republicans on the panel raised a lot of complaints about the ability of the tech platforms to, in their view, silence conservative views And a lot of this stems from Facebook kicking Trump off the platform and Twitter doing the same. And, you know, Democrats have other concerns that I think mostly go to competition issues. But at the House hearings, there was Republican support for these bills, notably Ken Buck from Colorado, the most radical bill, which would force some of the companies to exit certain businesses, he was a key vote to getting that approved. And I think the other interesting 
dynamic is not all Democrats are sort of united on, on these bills. What we saw in the hearings was that members from California, Zoe Lofgren, who represents Silicon Valley, they oppose some of these bills. This, this bill I mentioned about requiring some of the businesses, some of the platforms to exit certain businesses, which she said just, just went too far. She compared it to a grenade getting thrown into the tech industry. Many critics of the antitrust approach, including the companies themselves, say that the House bills are more about punishing companies for being big than actually protecting consumers. In fact, in his opening statement at a House antitrust hearing last July, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg pushed back on the idea that these main platforms are as dominant as many people think they are. New companies are created all the time, all over the world. And history shows that if we don't keep innovating, someone will replace every company here today. And that change can often happen faster than you expect. Of the 10 most valuable companies a decade ago, only three still make that list today. And for every dollar spent on advertising in the U.S., less than 10 cents is spent with us. We're here to talk about online platforms, but I think the true nature of competition is much broader. When Google bought YouTube, they could compete against the dominant player in video, which is the cable industry. When Amazon bought Whole Foods, they could compete against Kroger's and Walmart. When Facebook bought WhatsApp, we could compete against telcos who used to charge 10 cents a text message, but not anymore. Now people can watch video, get groceries delivered, and send private messages for free. That's competition. David, another signal that times are changing for big tech was President Biden's recent pick to chair the FTC, Lena Khan, a woman who's been described as kind of an antitrust rock star. So who is she? So Lena is um, a professor at Columbia Law School. She's only 32 years old. She came to prominence with a paper she wrote as a law student that was about Amazon that really criticized the way uh, antitrust enforcement works, how it thinks about competition issues, harm to competition. And she really laid out how Amazon is, is an example of a company that can kind of evade antitrust scrutiny because of the, the system that exists now for considering what's harmful and what's not. And she said this is totally broken, basically, and that there needs to be a whole new approach that uh, basically abandons the, the current framework. We actually have some tape of Lena Khan being interviewed at the Aspen Ideas Festival back in 2019 when she was still working as legal counsel on the House Judiciary Committee. Here she is talking about a paper she wrote for the Yale Law Journal called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And it became very clear that there was something going on here, um, that Amazon was slowly but steadily amassing structural dominance in some of these markets in ways that I thought raised huge questions for, um, for antitrust and for regulation more generally. Khan went on to write a follow-up paper called The Separation of Platforms and Commerce, which basically created the talking point roadmap for the House investigation. Lena is very well known in the antitrust world for advocating for really a whole new approach to antitrust enforcement that would be really radical for today. 
And what was interesting about the the nomination was she was initially nominated as a commissioner, and then the president, when she was confirmed, named her her chairwoman. So now she is she is running the agency. So which is a very powerful position, much more powerful than just being a commissioner or one of five commissioners. David McLaughlin is a reporter for Bloomberg News. David, thanks so much for joining me. On July 9, President Joe Biden issued an executive order outlining 72 separate initiatives designed to improve competition in big tech, as well as a number of other sectors, including healthcare, airlines, and agriculture. The executive order I'm soon going to be signing commits the federal government to full and aggressive enforcement of our antitrust laws. No more tolerance for abusive actions by monopolies. No more bad mergers that lead to mass layoffs, higher prices fewer options for workers and consumers alike. Specifically, the order asked the FTC to restore the Obama administration's net neutrality provisions, increase scrutiny of large mergers, as well as adopt new rules on the accumulation of data that many tech companies rely on for income. Many legal experts have speculated that the United States has been slower than other countries to rein in big tech, perhaps because of our cultural commitments to free speech or just a general reluctance to constrain the capacity of these dynamic companies to innovate. However, other governments around the world aren't taking the same hands-off approach. In our final episode of the Unchecked series, we'll look at what some other countries are doing to regulate the flow of information online as well as what a next-generation internet architecture designed around public service rather than corporate profits might actually look like in practice. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.